Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Pentecost service. I hope that you're doing well. And it's a little interesting when you're recording a service for Pentecost because you you haven't heard the other message or even had an opportunity to chat with a speaker and know what he's going to cover. So I'm not necessarily going to go into a lot of the fundamentals about Pentecost here in this sermon, but I will touch on them a little bit. You just can't help yourself on the holy days uh, to talk about some of the fundamentals. Uh, it is a privilege to be here understanding the meaning of this day. Isn't it though? The world doesn't understand and it's easy for us to inflate our own egos sometimes to think, oh, I understand so many deep mysteries of the world and the rest of these individuals don't. But it's really a day like Pentecost that reminds us if we do understand these things, it's not because of ourselves. It's not because we are somehow that much more brilliant than people in the world or insightful than people in the world. It's because God in his mercy has shown us these things. It reminds us that, frankly, if there were people in the world, perhaps, who were shown these things, they might even understand them faster. They might actually get it much more quickly than the rest of us and develop insights much faster than the rest of us. But rather in his mercy, he has set us aside. He has forgiven us. He has given us his spirit and he has shown us some of his deep things, not because we're brilliant, uh, but because he is amazing and he is faithful and he is merciful and he is loving. So these holy days remind us of fundamental truths like that. In particular, this day Pentecost is all about the spirit of God and his giving that spirit to the church. It's one of the things we're mindful of on this day. You look at the sequence of the holy days and it all begins with Passover, right? That first festival Passover, which isn't a Sabbath like the first day of unleavened bread, but it is the first of these particular festivals. So you have the Passover in which we have pictured the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, uh, pictured by the sacrifice of that Passover lamb. It's because of Passover that our sins are able to be forgiven, that we no longer have to be this corrupt vessel walking on the earth, but we can actually be purged of our sins, not because of what we're able to do, uh, but because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, a sacrifice that we accept uh, through what comes uh, next in the sequence of the holy days. What does come next? The days of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread in which we put leavening out of our homes and we seek to take in unleavened bread every day of that festival period pictures our only proper response to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is literally the only rational, appropriate response to the sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf is to accept that sacrifice, to turn from the sins that required his death on our behalf and to accept the way of life that he provides, to accept the living laws that he provides and to accept the way of love that he exemplified. Uh, he and his father actually have toward us that kind of love and to accept that and to seek to take that in every day as God and Jesus Christ are building their own characters in us. But then how do they do that? That brings us to today, this amazing day of Pentecost, in which we actually saw back in 31 AD, the uh, first century church received the Spirit of God in mass upon the believers at that time. It was a pouring out of God's Spirit. If you go back, and again, I'm not sure what's covered in the other sermon you've talked about today, but you go back and look at the actual 
Old Covenant rituals related to the day of Pentecost. And you see that it's interesting. It's not two loaves of unleavened bread uh, that is offered on that day, but it's actually leavened bread. God's very specific that on the day of Pentecost, it's leavened bread that is to be used, which is very interesting because the unleavened bread is is very easily seen in terms of being a you know a picture of Jesus Christ and his sinless state. But then there's us. And our backgrounds aren't quite the same as Jesus Christ. We have not lived sinless lives. We have lived lives that have had that, even though through his sacrifice and what he's doing in us, we actually are are purged of those things. This day of Pentecost pictures this day, this day of the first fruits, when the first fruits of a harvest were celebrated, pictures God's church and is pouring out of his spirit on that church, just as he did in 31 AD. And it's that spirit that makes so much possible in our lives. It's, uh, I don't want to talk in odd ways, but it really is in a sense, the presence of that spirit that makes us something more than human. We are still human beings. I'm not trying to be strange, but there's more than that to us now, right? We actually are partakers of the divine gift. Uh, Peter talks about that in his letters. And what a blessing that is. It's, it's an amazing to be able to, to have uh, contact with, uh, to be in touch with, to, to, with God in a way that pe- other people aren't able to be. It's not because we're special. Again, if we start thinking it's because somehow uh, we're better than other people, that we're more deserving than other people, then frankly, we put ourselves in a mindset to lose that gift, to not Uh, really be a worthy vessel of that gift anymore. It takes humility to understand. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with appreciating the true special gift that it is. Before we actually launch into the sermon proper, as we're just talking here about Pentecost and some fundamental ideas, I just wanted to read one particular passage uh, to remind us of the things that, that what this day pictures, this spirit makes possible for us, uh, how amazing they actually are. In Ephesians chapter 3, And we'll start in verse 14. Ephesians 3 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul says some wonderful things here. Ephesians 3 verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You know, the spirit that we have been given is the spirit of sonship. It is, it is, it begets us into the family of God, not yet born, not yet fully expressing, uh, that family vision that we will be, right? Uh, not yet fully expressing that. That'll come at the resurrection. But our begittle begins with this spirit that, that we who've been baptized received when hands were laid upon us after that baptism. Uh, continuing verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. We have access to the spirit of God. He has given of himself and placed that in us. And through that, we can be strengthened in a very special way. Uh, something to be appreciated. Uh, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How is it that Jesus Christ is living his life in each of us? It is through that spirit that he and the father dwell in us. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love, it is a spirit of love. We'll talk about that a little bit in the sermon today. It's a spirit of love. We actually have the capacity to grow in us 
the love of God, his own love that surpasses what most of us would be able to come up with as love on our own without that help, uh, that we, verse 18, might be able to comprehend with all the saints. We won't go into it now, but that spirit is also a spirit of comprehension. It helps us to understand things we would not otherwise understand. Paul talks in other places about how it's through the spirit that we have access to the things that God knows, just as a man's a spirit uh, is key to what he understands and the rest. To comprehend with all the saints what is the width and depth, uh, sorry, and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what this spirit is. It is a down payment of what is to come. And what is to come? It is the fullness of God. That we are destined to be something that is hard to describe in simple words. That we are destined to be a part of the family of God, to share his existence with him and with his son, our elder brother. And this spirit is key to that. He continues, verse 20, as we conclude this, this verse, this passage. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What an astonishing statement, right? What is God able to do? Well, it is not just above all that we ask. And it's not just abundantly above all we ask. It's not just exceedingly abundantly above all we ask. It is exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. That is what God is able to do. And what is the means of doing that? Well, it is by, according to the power that works in us. So this Holy Day Pentecost can sometimes be one that I don't know, it, it sometimes may not seem perhaps as exciting as the others. You know, the days of unleavened bread, you're doing something, right? You're casting out leaven, you're having to clean, and you're prepping foods you haven't eaten before. Later on, you know, we get to trumpets, and that's certainly exciting, talking about the return of Christ and all the events there, and atonement, you're, you're fasting, and that certainly makes it a day that's a highlight in some ways. And then, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, remarkable, right? I mean, we're, we're just enjoying ourselves as, as our lives picture the millennium for that week in certain ways. And then the last uh, great day, that day that pictures the, the, the coming again of those who we have long missed, who have departed this life without knowing the truth for their opportunity. And sometimes I feel like, maybe it's just me, that Pentecost gets lost in the shuffle. But let us not forget that it is the spirit we focus on this day, this gift of God that really does unlock so many things. It is key to so much of what God is doing in our lives and in the church. So that said, I wanted to talk about some specific things today. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, again, I couldn't help but go over at least some fundamental ideas here on this day of Pentecost just to make sure that they are discussed. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> We see that among the things that come with that power we just spoke of in the book of Ephesians are certain gifts. God does give gifts to his people and to the body of Christ for various reasons. And Paul talks of some of those gifts in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. Now we'll start in verse, let's see, I'll we'll go ahead and start in verse 1. We read, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
Now, why does he say that? Because it is easy to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. In fact, if you look online, I don't necessarily encourage it, but if you just happen to be online and you see certain people speaking spiritually, uh, you'll see there's a great deal of ignorance about spiritual gifts. And perhaps some of that ignorance might actually be touched upon by what we cover today. Uh, Let's go ahead and jump down to verse 4. He says here, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Uh, That is, just because there is a single spirit, that is the spirit of God, doesn't mean that there's not varieties of gifts that are derived from that. You know, even in this, it's interesting because there are those out there of of certain, uh, well, various parts of counterfeit Christianity, not the true Christianity, uh, that speak of certain gifts as in, well, everybody should have this and everybody should have that. And it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, compared to what Paul says. Paul says there's diversities of gifts. Just because there's one spirit doesn't mean that everyone in the body of Christ, for the sake of the body of Christ, is given the same gift. And he's discussing that here. And actually, that is something that we're doing in Corinth. It seemed like they're trying to press everybody into the same mold in that regard. Uh, Verse 5, there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Verse 6, There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. It is interesting that there is a a distinction there, right, between wisdom and knowledge, right? They don't, they're not always exactly the same thing that, you know, you can have knowledge of a lot of facts, but not have the wisdom to deal with that. Or sometimes you can have a great deal of wisdom, but you don't actually have some of the the facts you need to actually empower that wisdom, to to fuel that wisdom and application. Verse nine, to another faith by the same spirit, to their gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, which can also mean inspired speaking, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, that is languages, to, uh, to another the interpretation of tongues. Again, the interpretation of languages. But, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. <clears throat> we don't have to be bothered by the personal pronoun there. Whenever the spirit is involved in doing something, it is God the Father and Jesus Christ who are involved in doing those things. It is they who, who determine gifts and decide those things inside the church. And then verse 12, he says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So he talks about these diversities of gifts. And, you know, brethren, let's be honest with ourselves. We have longed for quite some time to see the expression of these kinds of spiritual gifts in a way that just is, makes it obvious to the world that God is working in the church in power and in majesty and in love. We'd like to see that. Now, I want to make sure it's really plain. I am not saying that we do not experience these spiritual gifts in the church. We absolutely do. Many of us can speak to having personally been healed in some kind of way, in a way that we're not able to explain uh, by the physical things around us or those kinds of things, but we have actually experienced a healing, and we credit that to God. I, Working here in the Charlotte office at headquarters, I see diversities of gifts. I see... Three people sometimes doing the job of 10 
people. It is remarkable what God is able to accomplish with such a small ragtag group of people, if you will, a work that is far beyond what we truly should be able to do. And I see in that working the expression of various gifts. I can see this person and see what they're blessed with. I can see this person and see God working in a very different way than this other person. And I I see that in families. I see that in people. And it's a remarkable thing. It's something to be enjoyed. It's something to be appreciated. And it's something to thank God for. But that said, we do long to see those gifts expressed in an even more powerful way in the church, don't we? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if Instead of having to go to Google Translate or something, whenever we're traveling abroad and, and, and seeking to spread the gospel in some place where, where there is no expert of languages in the church, it doesn't make a difference because we're able to understand the language miraculously, even speak the language miraculously. Wouldn't that be absolutely remarkable? You know, I'm not trying to put down the days in which we are. In fact, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 specifically says that we are not to despise the day of small things. Uh, Definitely not. God builds on these things. These things are important. But that said, wouldn't we like to see more? Wouldn't we like to see those gifts reigning that much more in power in the church? To see healings that not just seem to be something done in a corner where we're grateful and we're thankful and we've experienced it, but to see healings on a scale that brings the world's attention to the church as it did in the first century where people notice, look, I think you guys are crazy. I don't believe what you believe. I don't understand how you can see, read the Bible and see these things because I don't see these things at the same time. I cannot deny the power that is being done in you in this body of people. And I have to ask for more. I have to ask for information. Wouldn't that be remarkable? You know, Dr. Meredith, before he died, encouraged all of us to to plead with God, to, to go to God in passion. We've fasted for these things, to ask that God would work in his church in a powerful way. Well, if we want that, then we need to be doing the work beforehand. We need to be doing the work that makes us a fit people for those gifts. You know, in particular, there are, there are many things that we could talk about, right? There's so many things that that are involved in being a a fit vessel for those gifts. For instance, if we turn to the book of Acts, we'll be spending some time in Acts, so it's, even though I'm just wrapping up my my intro to this point, it's good to go ahead and make it here. In Acts chapter 5, we see one of many prerequisites uh, to receiving these kinds of gifts and having God's Spirit manifested powerfully amongst us. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter is speaking to the Jewish leaders who were not very happy with them at the time, we see Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Peter says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey him. That's just one of several prerequisites to having God's Spirit and having it work in the church is that we're obeying God, that we're not in rebellion against God, but that we're actually examining the scriptures for how he indicates in various ways we should be responding to him and responding to his way of life, responding to his commands, responding to his law, responding to his desires in the world, and that we seek to obey him. And that is one of many prerequisites that is involved in making us fit vessels for his spirit. 
and fit vessels in which he can work his wonders through that spirit. But today I'd like to spend the rest of our time focusing on two particular prerequisites. That is, when we look at the church in the first century, a church in which God very plainly worked miracles, in which he very plainly poured out these spiritual gifts in power and that he moved in power in the church to accomplish his own purposes in a way that we would love to have and to see in the church today. We see two very particular prerequisites that I would like to talk about for the remainder of our sermon time today. And so the title of my sermon today is Before the Gifts. Before the Gifts. That is, if we desire for God's gifts to be manifested in the church, then there's things we need to keep in mind that need to be in place before those gifts are given. And we need to attend to our responsibilities in that regard. Now, of these two gifts, I'm going to focus perhaps a little more on one than the other, mainly because the the first of these I'll talk about, I've actually talked about a lot fairly recently. And I think I saw a sermon come online where I've been talking about these things. So I I don't want to hammer on that one too much, but I cannot help myself but bring it up because it is a vital prerequisite. So one of the two prerequisites I would like to discuss today in the sermon is a passion for God's work. We must have in the body of Christ a passion for God's work in reaching the world. And I'm not trying to play word games about the work. It is true that we should be preparing the bride, that we should be uh, learning that, that the ministry's job is to feed the sheep among other jobs. And I'm not talking, I'm not trying to, to play word games. I want to be very plain about this. Yes, those things are important and we must attend to those things. But you can't actually attend to those things well if you're not doing the other. And the other is what I want to focus on for this first prerequisite. Doing the work of seeking to reach the world with these truths. Having a passion for that work we see in the first century church is really a vital prerequisite for God manifesting his gifts of the spirit inside the church. And again, I have talked about this on more than one occasion and, and, and fairly recently, at least uh, from perspective of giving sermons here in Charlotte. And so I don't want to spend too long on this, but I cannot help myself. We must, if we're going to be thorough about the topic, we have to talk about it. Let's turn to Acts chapter two. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, we we see the pouring out of the Spirit that we are actually focused on here on this day of Pentecost in a special way. Acts chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, again, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we won't go into much more of this. I want to highlight this for a few different reasons. One, we do have some who have come to us from various other traditions of uh, counterfeit Christianity out there in the world. And some do come to us from a Pentecostal background. And when I say Pentecostal, I'm not referring to the Holy Day. I'm referring to that particular strain of counterfeit Christianity. And uh, these passages to those outside in the world in that particular, caught up in that particular flavor, 
uh, of that apostasy, if you will, means something very different to them than what it means to us. And I, I've, I've talked to some of those who believe that, oh, God is manifesting this particular miracle in our church every Sunday, every Sunday. You know, this is going on. It's like, well, really, is, is, is that what's happening? Are you actually seeing tongues of fire? Right? Move about the room and it's filled with a rushing mighty wind and these tongues of fire are flicking. No, usually when you actually talk with those individuals, the gifts that they're talking about boil down to something that frankly is easily physically imitatable. Uh, they're not actual spiritual gifts. They're, they're a deception. They're, they're a, uh, a counterfeit, if you will, just to use that word, it's such a great word we use, uh, of the actual spiritual gift. This was a gift of, one, it was clearly miraculous. Flames of fire, these tongues of fire resting upon everyone's head in that room was unavoidable. They recognized this is, this is God doing this. This isn't us. There's not someone with a little big lighter going about, you know, kind of hiding and making it look like a flame. This is clearly a miracle of God. And they began to speak with other tongues, with other languages, languages they had not learned. And when you read the rest of, of this passage here in Acts chapter 2, what was the purpose of it? It was to do the work. In fact, you go through verse 5 and you go through uh, verses 5 through 12 or 5 through 13. It's obvious what they did. Once they were given that gift and they were clearly speaking in other languages, they didn't stay in that room they didn't stay in that room and talk to each other and say, this is amazing. Isn't this amazing? You know, speaking well, today, we could say German and French uh, and Spanish, and Japanese and Chinese and all these different languages. Isn't it remarkable that we can talk this? I'd, I'd love to speak Russian. It just, it's a, to me, it's a fascinating sounding language. And they didn't just sit and stew in their own glory. They did immediately what they were supposed to do. And that is they went out and they talked to the crowd about everything God wants them to know. They had a passion for the work. The moment they were given that gift, there was no question to them what they were supposed to do with it. They were supposed to do the work. God had not given them that gift of the spirit expecting it to be without profit. He expected it to be used in the way he wanted it to be used, which was to do the work. The church of the first century shared Jesus Christ's passion for spreading the truth to other people. Before they were given that gift, that was where their heart was. That was where their desire was. And so consequently for them, it was, it was the most natural thing in the world to act upon that gift as they should. Let's look at Acts chapter four for another example. Again, we're trying to highlight that before the gifts are given, certain things have to be in place. And among those things is a passion for doing the work of God to the world. In Acts chapter four, here we have this, this prayer that's going to be given by the church. Uh, after Peter and John have been persecuted by... Uh, uh, by the Jews and threatened by the Jews. Don't go around preaching all this stuff, right? You know, we, we don't like the idea that you're blaming this man's death on us. And we don't like this little sect of our faith, you know, that you're creating. And so they went to the followers. These people did have authority uh, over them. They did have the power uh, to imprison them, which they actually did on multiple occasions. Uh, to, it was actually those leaders that worked with the Roman government to get Jesus Christ crucified, Right the people in these particular positions of power. So this was a real threat. 
And so they went to the body of believers and they prayed together. And their prayer is enlightening when it comes to what kind of heart must we have before the gifts are given, if we are to be fit recipients of the gifts of the Spirit. See, starting in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, we read, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people... Uh, plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles of the people of Israel and, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, there's an interesting part of this passage. I think I've emphasized this in, a, in another sermon. But if you go through what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, I tend to think of the, the pre-Passover, sorry, the Passover prayers of Jesus Christ and John, you know, there towards the end of John and John 17 in particular, I know, but all those chapters as being the Lord's Prayer, quote unquote, but still the model prayer that Jesus Christ delivered to us. And it talks about praising God at the beginning and seeking his will uh, and highlighting, you know, may the things that he desires be done on earth in the way that his will is accomplished in heaven. When you look at these, it's really what you see at the beginning of their prayer. They don't launch right into their request. They actually do take time to praise God, how he is truly above the kings of the earth. And even when the kings of the earth seem as though they're plotting against him and somehow making their little plans to try to to push back and destroy what God is, is seeking to do on earth, that even in those cases, they point out, it's really what you determined beforehand to be done, God. Truly, you are the master of all these things. Your will being accomplished on earth to serve your mighty purposes. It's really remarkable that even in their times of distress, we see that that's how they start out their prayer, with this praise of God. In a sense, setting their relationship aright with him by understanding where he properly belongs. But then they do get to their request, which was the whole point of me bringing this up. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And God rewarded that. It says when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Look at that. I freely admit that if I knew there were people gunning for me that were ready to throw me in prison because of the things I preached, it would be so tempting to make my priority, God, please keep me safe, right? My family needs me, my wife, my, my children, you know, they, they, they need me, please, you know, how, how can I preach your word if I'm in prison, right? Keep me safe so I can keep doing this. And yet they barely even touch on that. They really don't. They say rather in the face of all these things, what is their first request? Make us bold. Make us bold to continue preaching your word, not to each other, not just making some videos online that maybe, you know, a handful of people will watch, but to go out where the people are, to be actively going forward in this world that does not know you, that we may make them help them to know you. That is their focus. That was the attitude of this church. 
You know, it's interesting and, and see how it's tied to signs that that they say, yes, give us signs, but why? Give us these gifts, but why? That it will back up the message so that people will understand that these are the servants of Jesus Christ and they should be listened to. You know, it's interesting, you go all the way to the end of the book of Acts, we do see uh, uh, one miracle there. Well, there's actually reference to several miracles. I'm going to focus on one. In Acts chapter 28, we have Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, on the island of Malta. And out of nowhere, he gets bit by a snake. Things go, think, things happen in this world, right? So in Acts chapter 28 and verse 3, we see uh, they, were, they were making a fire. And it says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. <clears throat> so this wasn't just a, a kind of hit where people might even wonder, well, maybe he didn't bite. Maybe he barely missed Paul or something. No, the viper fastened on his hand. Paul's lifting his hand. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have been, well, well look at that. You know, look, look, look at this. There's a snake hanging off my hand. No, it's probably like everything else. He's just like, whoa, you know, and he sees the snake and he wants to get it off. So he does. He just, wow, he's gone. But, but no one could deny that here is this serpent, this viper, this poisonous animal that is latched onto Paul's hand. And everybody saw it. So it says verse, verse four. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, well, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped to the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So they got, well, clearly the gods have doomed this man, right? The shipwreck didn't kill him. And so the powers that be have doomed, hey, you're not escaping, you murderer or whatever you are. I'm going to send a snake to bite you. Verse five, it says, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. So you can imagine everybody standing around watching him. They just know that he's going to die at any minute. And he just keeps doing his work, maybe. You know, he's got the fire going. Maybe he even goes to, to get some more sticks. And they look at each other like, why isn't, the, why isn't this guy dead yet? You know, what's going on? But it says, but after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You know, just like that, he goes from, he's promoted from being a murderer somehow to, to being a god. But what a witness it was there to the power of God in them. And we see that uh, there was this leading citizen who received them and, and entertained them courteously for several days. They bring people to, to Paul and they're healed and it's an opportunity to preach the gospel. Well, this miracle didn't happen in a vacuum. This is literally uh, what was a promise that would actually be able to happen. If you go to Mark chapter 16, when we see the commission being given in Mark chapter 16, then we see this is exactly what God said would happen. Mark, Mark chapter 16, and we'll just grab here, the commission is being given, and it says in verse 17, these signs, this is verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues or languages. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it'll by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, again, it does not mean that they will actually do like these snake handling groups that purposefully, actively tempt God by bringing a bunch of poisonous snakes in and then suddenly you know, holding them up and marching around. That's literally 
not what is happening, what it's talking about here. It's rather talking about exactly what happened with Paul. That here is a, a poisonous serpent that has literally attached himself to his hand. Uh, in fact, at, at verse 18, the footnote in my uh, New King James Bible suggests it could be translated that in their hands they will rather you know, have these serpents. So here, this is literally, if you will, in Paul's hand. He's got this serpent dangling there and he shakes it off in the fire and everyone knows he's going to die. There's no way you got this serpent pumping venom into your vein or into your body, hanging there, and you're not going to die and then he doesn't. What is it? Notice the context of this. This is not a miracle that happens in a vacuum. The context is, hey, when you're doing my work, I will send these signs that will follow you, that will back up my message among them this. In fact, right after that, it talks about laying hands on people so that they recover. And that's what happens next. If you continue reading in Acts chapter 28, people there in the area, there on Malta, are bringing their sick to Paul. And he's laying hands on them and they're being healed. It was in the service of the work. The service of the work. Let's look at just one more example before we leave this, this first one. And that's in... 1 Corinthians in chapter 14, when Paul is talking about the gift of speaking foreign languages that you have not learned. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 22. One brief thing he says. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22. He highlights, therefore tongues, meaning this gift of speaking other languages, therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. He says he's, he's, he's chastising Corinth, who's so caught up in this idea, this particular miracle of speaking in foreign languages. And he's saying, look, it's, it's not even about you. It's not about you talking to each other somehow and impressing each other and frankly, creating a potential congregation of gibberish if there's not interpretation and the rest. It's a sign for unbelievers. You go back to Acts chapter two. What was the purpose of the gift? It was to share the truth with unbelievers believers and it did impress those unbelievers the way it's supposed to you know mr armstrong boiled things down so powerfully succinctly when he said that god's way is a way of give not a way of get and this idea of focusing on the work that we have to have a passion for the work if we are going to be fit vessels here in the body of christ to receive those gifts is an expression of that are we just here to shine our gifts in each other's faces? Or is the presence of spiritual gifts in the church in all their varieties, the most dramatic to the most subtle, is the purpose of it to fuel a work of God that is giving truth to the world? You know, that idea that we are to live a life that is focused on give and not get is so profound, profound to levels that frankly we often do not consider and that includes the presence of gifts in the church, of healing in the church, of miracles in the church. And one of those prerequisites to that we see present in the first century church was a passion for doing the work of God to the outside. So that's one prerequisite. I'd like to focus on another. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> you know, I said I wouldn't spend too much time on that first one. and I couldn't help myself, so I'm going to have to focus here in the second one. In Acts chapter 2, we see another prerequisite. The second of the two that I'd like to focus on for the remainder of the sermon. In Acts chapter 2, we've already read this once before, but let's go ahead and read it again. 
It says in verse one, again, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now notice it doesn't say this. Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one place. It doesn't just say that. It says they were together with one accord in one place. They were not simply together in the same place. They were together in unity in that place. Accord communicates a sense of agreement with each other. And that is the second prerequisite uh, that needs to be in place before gifts are poured out that I want to discuss in this as exemplified by the first century church is there must be unity in the body of Christ. There must be this sense of powerful unity, not a unity rooted in false things or a pretense but grounded in reality, as we'll see when we look at various passages. You know, the word there that's translated all with one accord uh, is homothumadon. If you want to look at it in, in language resources, it's uh, uh, according to Strong's numbers, it's Greek 3661. It's a Greek word, 3661. But it essentially has a literal meaning. It doesn't mean this, you know, we have a lot of words that are used figuratively, but they come from a certain literal background uh, for, for reason. And it has sort of a literal sense of, of same breathing when you put the pieces together, same breathing in a sense where, you know, if you can imagine being with people sort of breathing in unison, there's times when I remember working at camps, uh, preteen camps in particular, this particular example comes to mind and I'm trying to help a young man calm down. It was a particularly troubled young man and I was trying to help him calm down and to, to lower his stress levels for what he's currently going through. And I breathed with him, you know, I say, no, just kind of take in a breath, just breathe in and breathe out and breathe in and breathe out and trying to do that to calm his spirit, uh, into a place that was more, more profitable for him. And frankly, for the, for the whole dorm, I was a counselor, uh, that particular year. And, you know, as we did that, it was helpful. And, and there was, even though it was only a small thing, it was kind of a unification. He was in a place I didn't want him to be that he really didn't need to be. It wasn't healthy for him and the others. And so I was bringing him to, to a place uh, where we're a little more on the same page. So it's kind of interesting, the use of this word. It, it communicates a sense of having the same passions and even the same will to a certain extent, which would have to be a yieldedness uh, to God's will for that kind of will to be so unified. We see that description, uh, frankly, in many places and of the first century church. I think this is important. If we want to have these gifts expressed in the church, the first century church is such a vital model for us. Uh, if you turn to Acts chapter five, you see this expression employed again. And again, associated with actually the, the working of signs and the working of wonders. Uh, it talks about uh, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. That being in unity, that being of the same mind, and the same heart helped that church to be a proper vehicle for the gifts of God and for the power of his spirit. And so before the gifts, if we long to have those gifts in the church expressed in that similar 
powerful, unavoidable by people in the world who see them kind of way, then we must seek a passionate unity in the body of Christ and in the church. If that's what we long to have. You know, let me add at this time that Satan is working overtime to prevent that from happening. It's interesting. I, I subscribe to Christianity Today. It's not because I, I, I like their doctrines and all the rest. I've subscribed to a lot of magazines just to be informed for the sake of uh, editorial and doing various work. And even though we passionately disagree with uh, the writers of Christianity Today on so many things, yeah, sometimes I think of the old phrase, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. These are human beings and they believe what they're saying, but they're wrong. It's, it's clearly, when you go through its pages, a picture of counterfeit Christianity. Uh, there's so much. In fact, I think there's an old webcast that I did once where I, ref- I think it was an article from Christianity Today that I referred to. I'm not sure, but it was, it was obvious how wrong they were and how deceived by the devil in that particular article that I was referring to. However, that said... And there was an interesting note that I saw in my uh, uh, email that they sent. They were examining evangelical mainstream Christianity. And they were noting how it's fracturing in so many different ways. And part of why it's fracturing, they say, is not because of, say, if I understood what they wrote correctly, uh, not because of doctrinal things necessarily, not because of uh, things that actually have to do with their understanding of the Bible and such, but so many of the world's worldviews outside of their scope of faith, all these different political worldviews, all these things concerning a, a race and ideology and ideas about education and unions and all the rest, all of that was infiltrating and fracturing them. Worldviews that weren't being governed by the things that they thought were most important, but, but really it was like as if the world were setting the agenda. And... Brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we not face the same challenges today? Uh, You know, I pinch myself and it hurts, right? If I were to cut myself, which I won't, I would still bleed, right? I am a human being. And we, all of us, are exposed to this world's agenda on a regular basis. And the devil controls that agenda. And right now, among the top things he is focused on in this world is fracturing it. He must delight himself at the level of animosity and the level of anger and the level of hatred that he is stirring in people over things that are not grounded in what is most important. Not things rooted in God's word and the fundamental eternal principles of life, but things that are just uh, political and temporary that will go away, many of these things, the moment Jesus Christ returns to earth in terms of being driving principles of the world to come. Brethren, we are tempted by those things. We're tempted in our Facebook feeds. We're tempted in our Twitter feeds. We're tempted by our news feed and and, and the things that show up on our phones. And this message of the necessity of spiritual unity is so absolutely vital for the church today. So we not get caught up in these petty, petty, petty things that have nothing to do with the spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not present in the people who are wrangling over these things in the world. Mr. Rod McNair put it so well. I wish I had thought ahead and thought of the name of the sermon so I could give it to you. But if if I can't think of it, maybe that's a good excuse to just go search for all of Rod McNair's sermons on the lcg.org website and watch them. But there is one where he's talking about, and I know it's online, I've seen it, where he's talking about how this world is like the Titanic and it's sinking 
And we have an opportunity to be a, a, a lifeboat that can argue to people, hey, get off the boat. Join us in the lifeboat. You don't have to go down with this monstrosity. And the, the analogy that he gave, or the metaphor, if you will, that, that really struck me and sat with me was this idea that they're not simply rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. They're fighting over the deck chairs on the Titanic. They're arguing and punching each other over the deck chairs on the Titanic. Brethren, God wants unity in his church. He doesn't want us doing that. And Pentecost is the kind of day where we should be focused on that. Because if we really want his gifts expressed in the church, if that can serve as one of our motivations for seeking this, then let it be so because you saw that kind of unity in the church in the book of Acts. It was present before the gifts were given. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. And I'd like to look at some examples of this in, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 32, we see this remarkable description. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. We read here, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Let me just pause to say that is a remarkable description, brethren. They were of one heart and one soul. Their passions were unified and their desires were unified. If I were to look at the Facebook feeds of all of us here in the living church of God, is that something I would conclude of us? Would I conclude that we're of one heart and we're of one soul? It says, continuing in verse 32, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, let me highlight before I go any further, lest people want to use this in wrong ways. It's not saying they were communists. It's not saying they were socialists. It's not saying that the idea of personal ownership were simply given up and no longer existed. We know that's not even going to be the case in the millennium where it says that each man will dwell under his own vine and his own fig tree. You, if you don't own anything, you don't have anything to give, right? But the fact is they had a care for one another that when they looked at their things, they saw these things as tools they could use to serve others. Here they had brand new brothers and sisters in Christ that had come from countries far away for the day of Pentecost. And you know, if they could sell some belonging that they had, that they really maybe didn't even need as much as perhaps they thought before this event, that might be able to help pay for that many more groceries for this person who was trying to linger in Jerusalem to stay near these new brothers and sisters that they'd never had before, but now had a longing for so they could extend their stay further before they go off to some of these countries where they might be the only person in that country to believe these things. They were devoted to each other in a passionate way that is just absolutely beautiful. And what was the result of that unity? Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Again, see the tie of those things together. We long to have God work in power in us through his spirit. We long to him. We long for him to empower his body to preach his word in a way that is undeniable by the world that there's something going on here. Then take a look at the unity. Take a look at what was present before the gifts described even in that way, this powerful sense 
of sharing one heart and one soul. Uh, similarly, in Acts chapter 2, we see that going backwards just a little bit. Acts, oh wait, actually, yeah, sorry, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. This is after, right after that initial giant wave of baptisms and all these people coming in. Keep in mind, people that not only were strangers but may have even come from countries where there was some animosity, right? Where there would be reason. Imagine Republicans and Democrats in America suddenly finding themselves in the same place. Imagine, you know, pro-socialism liberals, if you will, and pro-laissez-faire capitalism conservatives, if you will. This was not a group of people that matched in any other way other than responding to the message, being pricked in their heart, and being moved to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and utterly change their way of life by repenting of the past and moving forward in these spiritual things. So here we have all of them together. And what do you have in this church? Uh, this remarkable unity. It talks about in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they continued steadfastly in these things, fellowshipping with each other, listening to the teaching of the apostles, breaking bread together. That's not a word for quote unquote communion. It literally was an idiom for having a meal together. We see that in multiple places and in praying with each other, you know, sharing together, you know, their dialogue with God. It says in verse 43, what's the result? Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Again, we see that connection, this presence of a remarkable, astonishing unity in the people and the ability of that body to be able to show forth these signs. Again, going into that unity, it says in verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They shared, in other words, abundantly and sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need, right? Didn't mean they reduced themselves to poverty. You know, you sell everything you have and then suddenly you're in need of someone to give to you because you don't have anything anymore. But rather they looked at their worldly goods in a different way. There was such unity that instead of this one thing being so precious to you, you realize, you know what? I'm, you know, if I sell this, I can go help Bob Sealingwall's mother and the difficulty she's had while she's here. They've been here for Pentecost out of their area and she's away from her normal herbs and such at home that kind of help her with her congestion. And I don't really have it, but you know what? This little bauble, I, I could sell that. I can go to that guy I know and I can come back with those herbs, right? They were loving each other. They were in unity and saw themselves as one body. And so continuing verse 46, daily with one accord in the temple. There's again, one accord. And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Just remarkable, right? What a remarkable unity. Now, as in marriage, that kind of unity takes work. It takes effort. It's not something we just sit back and expect to happen. Notice back in verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You know, there weren't a lot of offices in the church at the very beginning. You know, God really started with the apostles. We see later, for instance, in the book of Acts, that the position of deacon was made. 
Uh, and at the same time, we see that whenever hands had to be laid to give God's spirit, it was the apostles that had to do that. There wasn't the broader, expansive ministry. You literally had the apostles, right, and the small body of believers. The next thing you know, there's thousands of believers. And yet what you saw was they continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles. As the apostles began sharing everything that Jesus Christ had given them to share, then you saw them seeking that and believing in that and working with that. Would it have been a challenge for some of them? Absolutely, it would have been. And yet they were desiring for the truth. They were interested in assuming they don't know everything for once and, and, and listening to that teaching. And the time they spend together, you know, sometimes it takes effort to fellowship, but they were putting it in there, eating in each other's homes. It takes effort to be a unified people. It's not something that happens automatically. Automatically, things scatter. They don't clump together, right? They tend to scatter. Uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter four. You know, one of the keys that that highlights, sorry, in Acts, we just read, one of the keys to that unity is doctrine, is the teaching of the church. God has something to say about that. Ephesians chapter four. This is not necessarily a popular passage amongst some who consider themselves a part of the church of God uh, these days. And yet it is still every bit as true as it was when Paul had it penned for his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter four. And we'll start in verse 11. We read, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That is, you have structure in the body of Christ and positions that are defined and designed by God and Jesus Christ to serve in that body. You know, there are some out there who, who claim the, the name of Christ in their teaching and stuff that have actually done away with some of those things. And said, oh, you know, I know I was ordained an evangelist or something, but, you know, let's put all that aside and, and the rest. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have the option to do that. You know, being an evangelist, for instance, or being a pastor, for instance, is not something that we just decide as human beings. We have a living Christ who works in the church to set these things in place and to define these things. And Ephesians 4 makes it plain he has done that, not for no cause, but rather for very good reason, as we see continuing. Why? Why are these people in place? Why is there an organized and structured ministry in the body of Christ? We don't have to guess. He actually tells us. Let's start in verse 12 as we continue. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the word there means service, right? The, for the work of service, being able to serve each other, eventually to be able to serve the world. For the equipping of the saints for that work. I mean, if we desire to equip ourselves apart from the ministry that God says here in Ephesians 4, that he and Jesus Christ have put in place for a reason, we can expect disunity. People get so excited about the things they want to do. They want to go off on their own and do those things. You know, I, don't get me wrong. I hope those things are beneficial and I hope people are helped, but don't think that you're in line with the Bible when you do those things because Ephesians 4 tells another story. The body is organized for this equipping. It's not meant for just random people to go off on lo as a lone wolf and do their own thing. Unity matters. It doesn't matter just because we might want it and it would be nice. It matters because it matters to God and Jesus Christ in heaven. And it's not our right to set the concerns of unity aside because we think that our desires are more important, are more noble 
uh, are more selfless. Rather, we want to equip the saints for the work of service. Then we have to read verse 11, which comes before that, that there's a ministry in place to help make that happen. For the edifying of the body of Christ, we want to be edified. We want to stay together in edification and be built up as the body of Christ. Then we have to be a part of this body in unity, working with the mechanisms that God designed to be in place. Uh, Verse 13, till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. It might seem harsh uh, to have these kind of attitudes being referred to as childish, these attitudes that don't care about unity, that don't care about an ordained ministry. But that is the Word of God. That is Jesus Christ and God the Father inspiring the Apostle Paul through the Spirit. We're focused on this day on Pentecost to say those attitudes are childish. That may be present in adult men and women, and those adult men and women may have vocabularies, uh, may have a demeanor and a facade that seems mature. And yet the Bible says if you're willing to cast aside the mechanisms that God has put in place to help ensure unity, then that is a childish attitude. He says that very plainly, that we should no longer be tossed about, uh, be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. You know, it seems so cruel. There are people we could never think of as a, a deceiver because they're so sincere. But the Apostle Paul says elsewhere that there are those who deceive who are themselves deceived. Right? Just because a person is sincere, even self-sacrificially sincere for the things they believe, does not mean they're not a deceiver. All that matters is the truth of what they're saying. The truth of what they're saying. That's what makes a difference. It talks about how, uh, verse 15, but rather speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Not the shares it might want to do, but the shares it's been designated to do, that it's been prepared to do, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is a... Classic, long, Pauline sentence. Uh, And begins right there in verse 11, talking about how God has put structure in the church. There will not be unity in the church if we are going to cast aside the inspired divine mechanisms that God put in place to create that unity. There's also not going to be unity if there's not love. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We see this depiction of this mindset that we absolutely must have if there's going to be unity in the church and we're going to be fit vessels for those gifts. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We cannot pretend this is something not important. We in the living church of God must seek to be of one accord and of one mind. And if we see obstacles to that, we must be willing to cast them aside. This is the passion of Paul. Why? Because it is the passion of Jesus Christ whose spirit dwelt within him. 
Jesus Christ who ensured that these words were written because they reflect his very mind. Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit and a focus on yourself, your concerns. Oh, you know, it's, it's so important that I do what I think is right. Well, then live in the time of the judges when everybody thought what he individually thought, everyone did what he individually thought was right. That's not the time that's described in the New Testament and that is not the life of the New Testament church. It's about a unified body with mechanisms in place to help us grow beyond ourselves into something larger through whom God can do wonders. Again, verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. He's telling us, if you want to be able to have this unified fellowship in which I can work as your God, then you need to have this mindset that is focused on other people, that loves other people, that is self-sacrificial for other people and not focused on our own wants and desires. We must have this outgoing love. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. That is, did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he was willing to let that go so he could serve here on earth. Verse seven, but made, uh, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There is this self-sacrificial love we must embody in ourselves, brethren, to have the kind of unity that will make us fit vessels for the gifts of God's spirit. You know, consider 1 John. Look at 1 John. So fun. I'm using a Bible today that's actually a, a Bible I have not used in a long time because I forgot my regular Bible. It's actually one of the first Bibles I bought in the church. And it's falling apart, so I don't use it that often. Uh, and it's, it's amazing how you sort of forget. Uh, how many pages over is that? You know, you're so used to your regular Bible. First John and chapter... Let's see, start in chapter one. In verse three, when it comes to our loving fellowship with each other, what's at the basis of that? Here we have sort of a long sentence from John and we'll jump into it in verse three where he says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. That our fellowship with each other in love is only going to work if we actually also are investing in our fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. And those ties, that ties to our, our relationship to other people and our relationship to God are tied together in ways that sometimes we do not consider and we must. Uh, let's move over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 20. We read here, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, in verse 20, if I love God, and someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. You can't do one and neglect the other. 
In fact, he makes it very plain in the chapter before, in chapter 3 and verse 14. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. How do we know that we're in a category God is pleased with versus the other? It says in verse 14, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He can't be more plain than that. Friends, he can't. You know, if you don't love your brother, you abide in death. Now, what does that actually mean to love our brother? It's interesting. Let me get a little practical here as, as we're getting ready to close. Are there times when maybe there's someone that, you know, you can look around the congregation and you can go, you know what? I, I would be willing to die for everyone of these people here. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm not going to talk to that person because that person is just straight up, you know, you know, I just can't do that. Well, we need to question ourselves if that's the case, right? When parts of the body aren't willing to communicate, sometimes we have a difficulty. It doesn't mean that everyone is our best friend. We are filled with multiple personalities, right? It doesn't mean that everyone in that room is always going to be our absolute best friend. But is there some kind of grudge between us that we can't let go of in some kind of way? You know, are, are, are we, are we risk, do we risk saying perhaps that, you know what, hey, there's brother Bob Sealingwall and, you know, I washed his feet for all of our difficulties. I washed his feet on Passover. You know, clearly I, I love him and I have love of Christ, but don't ask me to shake his hand. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to shake that man's hand. You know, brethren, we have to ask ourselves if we're right with God, if such attitudes are in us and we're actually contributing to the unity of the body of Christ. Let's look at another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians and chapter 13, where Paul is talking about love. I won't read the whole thing, but I do want to make an important point. Speaking of the importance of love, he says, for instance, in verse 2, uh, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he's not saying he did. He's saying even if this were the case, uh, and, and, and though I have all faith so I could move mountains and have not love because I'm nothing, I'm absolutely nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, this was a real life possibility for them. It wasn't long after that Christians were burned at the stake by the Roman government. He says, though I give my body to be burned. You know, when I know of, pe of people in the past, that was the sacrifice they made for their, for their witness to Jesus Christ and his truths and his way of life. I admire that. And when I, when I hear stories of them dying faithfully, I think, I, I hope that I can comport myself just as well if I were in that circumstance. What a terrible thing to have to go through. And yet Paul says, even if I'm willing to do that, if I do not have love, it doesn't profit me anything. I might as well not even done that. He talks about the primacy of that, that love. You know, uh, we don't have time to turn to it. I'm afraid I've, I've used up too much time earlier. But Jesus Christ talks about natural love versus supernatural. And he talks about, you know, he, he says, even people love their friends, right? The people they like, the people that are close to them, you know, even they love their friends. You know, they don't love, they don't love the tax collectors. They don't love the people that want to persecute them. They don't love their enemies who wish them harm. And yet he says, you know what? God loves them. God actually gives them rain for their fields and puts a sun up in the sky for them. 
You know, what's the message of that? He's trying to say, if we're not willing to do what it takes to embrace a supernatural level of love for each other, then what's the point? So what's the point? Because your father does that. And everything we're doing here is to seek to turn you into one like me, he says, and my father. And this is our attitude. Brother, we've got to be willing to do what it takes for supernatural unity in the church if we want to be fit vessels for these works. My desire in this sermon was to summarize these two things, just two of many prerequisites to experiencing the gifts of the Spirit of God in the church. One of those, a passion for the work. Why would God pour his gifts out on a church that isn't willing to do with them, doesn't have a fire in their belly for doing with them what Jesus Christ would long to do with them? We must have a passion for his work to the world. We must see the world as Jesus Christ sees the world, which is white and ready for the harvest if we're to be fit vessels for that spirit. And we must have a sense of unity, not just a vague sense, not just a fake sense, but a real unity that is willing to do hard things to cast off those things that keep us separate and cause us to look at our brothers with eyes that are less than the eyes of God and Jesus Christ, who is also looking at them. Jesus Christ said that one of the great signs of his followers would be their love for one another. And why would God want to pour out spiritual gifts on a body that is unwilling to exemplify that primary sign of the people of God, a supernatural love for each other and unity. Brethren, I hope this has been a profitable Pentecost for you. I hope you don't, you know, sundown hasn't happened yet, perhaps, as you're there. Spend time talking about these things. Spend time with each other, uh, talking to each other about the benefits of the Spirit in the church. But for the sake of this message, what I hope to communicate is spend time on your knees to God asking that we can contribute, that each of us individually can contribute to the presence of these two prerequisites that must exist before the gifts so that we can manifest those gifts in the world as the body of Christ.